0: All right, well, let's get started. We're gonna start with uh, the epistles of Paul today. We're gonna do kind of an overview of the epistles. We're not gonna talk about each individual epistles, we'll just talk about them in general. And then we'll get started on Romans, but like I told someone else, we're not gonna get very far in Romans, so. But we are gonna go to Romans today, so it, it, that is going to happen, okay? All right, um, how many? who knows how many epistles are in the New Testament? 20-something, good. <laughs> I was just going to wait. You keep going. You'll... 12 or 15? Oh, epistles? Yeah, epistles. You, you were in the 20s. The 20s is correct. There's 21 epistles in the New Testament. 21. Anybody know how many are written by Paul? I want to say 13. Carl. 13. Uh, yeah, 13 or 14, depending on who you attribute Hebrews to. So if you give Hebrews to Paul, he's got 14. If you get, don't give him Hebrews, he's got 13. And the remaining epistles just vary by author, but the remaining epistles only comprise 10% of the New Testament. Paul wrote a massive amount of your New Testament. Now, when you read about the, the epistles, you'll find some people who want to have a debate. Is it an epistle or is it a letter? what's the difference a letter yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, and it well that's why i'll just give you this letters are for private or for particular eyes epistles or or literary works with a more general aim and a public audience i think it's a distinction without a difference it's a letter it's a letter written to a a church it's an epistle it's a letter (laughs) Um, those distinctions really don't help us any. You can use the two words interchangeably. You want to call it a letter, you want to call it an epistle, that's fine. Um, When we look at the evidence from the early church, what we find is that the epistles always followed a particular form. They had a format in the ancient world. And that's how we know these are letters. Letters. Uh, They always begin by naming the author. The author identifies who he is, because it's kind of rude not to introduce yourself. So he starts by naming himself, and then he gives the name of his reader, who he wants to speak to, or who he's writing to. And then after he names his reader, he'll give them a blessing of some kind. Wishing them well. Um, There's an example of this in Acts 15. Acts 15, you'll remember, it's the Jerusalem Council. And they write their decision to the churches, and they send them a letter. Acts 15, verse 23, And they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren, who are elders. There's their identification. To the brethren in Antioch and Syria. There's who he's writing to, who are from the Gentiles' greetings. And he gives them a greeting. Paul expanded on this type of letter. Uh Paul usually gives some kind of thanks for his readers. Uh, If you want to see those, well, here, since we're talking about Romans. Romans 1, verse 8, right after his introduction, he gives thanks for his readers. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Paul usually will give thanks, and then he'll go into a theological section where he begins to explain some theological point. Um, Think of the book of Ephesians, first three chapters. He's explaining the theology of salvation. Next three chapters, he does what? He applies it. And then he'll end with a practical section, which is the last part of Ephesians, and then he'll end with a personal greeting and an autograph of some kind to conclude his epistle, And we'll talk about the autograph in a minute. Um, not all of his letters had every single element. So if you'll go through his epistles, some of them don't have it in that particular order. Some of them don't have some elements of it. Um, I want to give you an example. Ephesians 1, and we kind of talked about this. Ephesians 1 is the closest one that follows that basic pattern. Ephesians 1... Verses 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, excuse me, by the will of God. So there he identifies himself. He gives his title to the saints who are at Ephesus. There he's identifying his readers who are faithful in Christ Jesus. There's a blessing, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He then gives thanks for his readers. If you jump down to verse 16, uh, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And then he has a doctrinal section. Remember I said he doesn't follow the order particularly well at all times? His doctrinal section begins chapter 1, verse 3. He begins to explain the doctrine, the theology that he wants to teach. And that goes all the way to the end of chapter 3. Chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, begins, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. There's the practical... Section: the application of everything he's taught. Chapter 6, he closes with a, a personal greeting. Um, we're not going to read through it because for time, but that's in verses 21 through 24. The only thing that the book of Ephesians is missing is the autograph, is the, the personal statement of who is writing. But it follows that basic form. The epistles of the New Testament are unique in ancient literature. They're unique. They're unique in all the religious texts. Most religious texts do not use the epistle. No other religious text has letters. Um, One writer said, The scriptures of other Oriental religions, the Vedas, the Zend-Avesta, the Tripitaka, and the Quran, the writings of Confucius. Wow, there's a typo lack the direct and personal address altogether. Even in the Old Testament, while the Old Testament has letters, Jeremiah 29 has a letter, Ezra 5, 6-17 through 17 has a letter in it, but none of those books are actual letters. They are books. The Old Testament does not use a letter or an epistle at all it gives a very it's a very impersonal here's the commands here's what you must do here's what happened and that's it so why the change why does the new testament deviate so drastically from other religious texts and even from the old testament there's no letters in the old testament but 21 out of 27 books in the new testament are letters through prophets and then the New Testament God is trying to well, he spoke through Jesus and then that had to be recorded in distributed to people who didn't hear Jesus and so and they had to set up churches and to communicate with the churches, there had to be letters, so mm-hmm. it kinda seemed like seems practical. Okay. Yeah, so there's yes. Perhaps the New Testament Uses letters to reflect the relation that this is a relationship, mm-hmm. whereas the Quran is just sit down, shut up, do it, and end of story. There's no relationship between man and God in all those. The New Testament there yeah. is a relationship between man and God. I you should hope. I should just give you guys this class. You guys teach this. You you guys nailed it. Um, Yeah, so you guys hit both sides of it. There's a practical side to it, and there's a relational side to it. Edmund Hebert, which if you don't have his New Testament introduction and you want an introduction, Edmund Hebert. Under the legal dispensation, the demands of God were set forth in legal documents, sealed with the direct authority of God. In the age of grace, God further makes known his will to his children through loving letters of instruction and exhortation. He wasn't trying just to make demands and lay down a law. He was writing in a way to foster a relationship. And there was a very practical element to that. Um, Another writer said, Statutory codes for subjects, letters of spiritual advice for sons. It marks a vast difference between what you were before Christ saved you and what you are now that He has saved you. You were an enemy who just needed the law. And now you are a son, and now you are a child, and now you get a loving letter to help you and to instruct you. And the epistles were very personal. Just like Christianity is all about a personal relationship with Jesus, the epistles of Paul came to his readers in a very personal way. Each epistle was written for a specific church. The Epistle to the Corinthians, the two epistles, were unique to that church. It addressed their specific problems, their specific issues. When he wrote to the Galatians, he didn't write the same thing that he wrote to the Corinthians. He addressed their specific concerns and their specific issues. If I wonder what they would write, what he would write about our church. Yeah, yeah Well, what what would he say about our church? <laughs> The epistles met them right where they were. It fit their capacity for understanding and applying the truth that was given to them. The epistles of the Romans gave them the basic truths of the gospel. These weren't PhD dissertations on topics that nobody ever cared about. They were adapted to specific situations and needs. Again, I'll give you Edmund Hebert again. They were... not composed as abstract studies in theology, nor were they doctrinal treaties produced by an erudite, cloistered scholar. Rather, the ready-out of an alert, compassionate, pastoral heart. Um, but even though they're personal, we wouldn't say they're not authoritative. They're personal, they're practical, but they're just as authoritative as the books of Moses, as Deuteronomy, or Exodus, Leviticus. They were still inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul, we already discussed, Paul wrote 13, 14 epistles, if you give them Hebrews. But that's not all Paul wrote. He wrote a lot more than what we have. And we can see evidence of that. If you go in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 5... 1 Corinthians 5, you see, we'll look at some evidence here. He reference a letter yeah, in multiple yeah. places he references writing other letters. Yeah. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians is the first letter we have of Paul to the Corinthians. Jump down to verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Well, this if this is his first letter, what's he talking about? This assumes there is another letter. 2 Corinthians 10, also in verse 9. Would somebody like to read 2 Corinthians 10, verse 9? For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. By my letters. This indicates there would have been more than just two. Otherwise he would have said, I do not wish to terrify you by my previous letter. He would have referred to just one. Uh, Colossians 4.16. Th- John, this may have been the one you were referring to. I not remember the citation. I just remember the, the idea. Colossians 4.16, he says, When this letter is read among you. Have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. There was a letter written to the church at Laodicea. That church was to take that letter, either make a copy of it, and send it to the Colossians, or they were supposed to just send the original letter to the Colossians. Either way, there was a letter that Paul wrote to Laodicea that we do not have. That it was not preserved. Um. There's another one in 2 Thessalonians 3.17. We don't need to look at that. So it seems clear that Paul wrote more than what we currently have, and most of those are not in existence. Is that a problem for us? Is that, does that pose a problem? I... Yeah. For whatever reason, those were not preserved. So there wasn't a, a time where the church just declared what the canon would be. The canon was just merely accepted and distributed. And for whatever reason, this letter or these letters that he wrote, these were not preserved. And so it doesn't really cause us a problem because God superintended which letters would be preserved and which ones would remain in the canon. Um. It's not actually unusual for us not to have everything. Guys, remember when we were talking about John? Remember the end of John? John 21, 25? And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. We don't even have all the words of Jesus. We have the parts that he wanted to preserve, though. The ones he wanted us to have. So how did Paul compose these letters? Let's first deal with some liberal stuff. Um, some claim that the that several of the epistles that are attributed to Paul are part of the pseudepigrapha. Anybody know what pseudepigrapha is? Yeah. It's writing that's written by one person claiming to be somebody else. So it would be like I write a book and I put the author's name as John MacArthur. Now why would I do that, other than the fact that I'm dishonest? Why would I put John MacArthur's name on my book instead of my name? Everybody knows who John MacArthur is. Nobody knows who I am. And if I put his name on my book, people will want to read my book. It'll get distributed. And there is a body of literature that is part of the pseudepigrapha, that we know it claims to be written by one person, but we know it wasn't written. For example, the Gospel of Thomas. It claims to have been written by the Apostle Thomas. Problem. It was written well after Thomas died. Thomas wasn't around. There's no way he could have written it. And these critics would include the book of Ephesians, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, First and 2 Timothy, Titus, 1 and 2 Peter, all as being part of the pseudepigrapha. All as being written by someone other than the author who, who, that's in the book. Now, there's some major problems with this. Major problems. First is, in order to say that this is part of the pseudepigraphy, you have to assume that the author is lying. You have to assume that the author is dishonest. Um, Well, you're in Colossians. Go to Colossians 1.1. Remember the form of the letter? He starts by identifying himself. Colossians 1.1. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. If these two are part of the pseudepigrapha, this author is dishonest. He's just flat out lying. Now, if the author is lying and this book is inspired, what are you really saying? You're either saying that this book is not inspired, or you're saying that God is lying. That kind of poses a major problem, doesn't it? Second problem. The church never accepted any of the pseudepigrapha as being trustworthy, much less being canonical. Uh, D.A. Carson and Douglas Moo have a New Testament introduction. Here's what they said. Nowhere is evidence cited that any member of the New Testament church accepted the idea that a pious believer could write something in the name of an apostle and expect the writing to be welcomed. The mere fact that it's part of the pseudepigrapha meant they excluded it, and they had nothing to do with it. Third, Peter recognizes Paul as being an author of Scripture. Second uh, Peter, Second Peter three, starting in verse fourteen, Peter says, "Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in Him." or by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Not only does he identify Paul as being his brother, he identifies him as writing letters, and he identifies those letters as being part of the canon of Scripture. Wait, the New Testament church recognized New Testament books as being Scripture? Yes. Fourth of the letters are pseudographer. Then the author of Second Thessalonians is a major hypocrite. Um, Second Thessalonians chapter two. Uh, verses 1 and 2, if you want to go there, you can. Um, he says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit, or here it is, or a message or a letter as if from us. The author of Second Thessalonians recognized that there's someone out there claiming to be Paul and writing letters to churches trying to disturb them and teaching them false doctrine. In the, chapter 2 verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you. Paul recognizes pseudepigrapha to be an act of deception. Now the if second Thessalonians as the liberals claim is part of the pseudepigrapha, the author here is not only a liar, he's a hypocrite. He's telling people to ignore the very thing he's writing. And he gives them a means by which they can know his letters are actually true. Remember I said he puts an autograph at the end of his letter? 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. He recognizes there are forgeries, and he recognizes there are people out there who are claiming to be him, and they're writing letters to people. And he says, I'm going to put my signature at the bottom of this, so you know this is coming from me. Because I don't want you to be deceived. And in fact, in Galatians 6, verse 11, he says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you, with my own hand. He... He wants them to be document examiners, to spot the forgery. You you can tell this is my handwriting. This is not a fake, this is not a forgery. But wait a minute, wait. Paul wrote the entire letter. Why would he need at the end of the letter to come and say, see, I'm writing with my own hand? And how would that be a distinguishing mark? Wouldn't he just say, look at the letter? Why does he need to put the autograph there? Any had a ideas? The he had a was an yes. yes, he had a scribe. Um, an amanuensis. I can't say that word. Okay. Um, in fact, in Romans, he actually identifies his scribe, or his scribe identifies himself. Romans 16 22. He identif- the scribe actually says who he is. I, Tertius, who write the letter, greet you in the Lord. Where is that? 1622, Romans 1622. So Paul would allow the scribe to write most of his letter. And then at the end, he would write a small portion just to prove that it was actually him. And that was his form of signing the document. But why employ a scribe? If you're going to write a letter, why use a scribe? Why didn't Paul just sit down and write the letter? Was he in prison at the time? For some of them he was. Yeah, so there may have been physical maladies. We'll talk about some of those. A lot of different reasons. Um, The first one is what you had mentioned, Galatians 6.11. He writes really large letters, and some say, well, maybe he had trouble seeing I I now use reading glasses a lot, and I blow up my text on here really big so I can see it, right? And so writing sometimes without my glasses is hard to do. And so if Paul had a vision problem, using a scribe would make writing a lot easier. Others say that the big letters indicate that he had a physical ailment. Maybe he had a problem with his hand. He was a tent maker, and he got injured somehow, and he was unable to write physically, and it was painful for him. So allowing the scribe to do it would ease his pain. Another idea is that he um, he just didn't like to write physically. He didn't enjoy the process. And by giving it to a scribe, it allowed him to be removed from the, that process, and he can just focus on and think on the content of what he wanted to say to him. Well, he wasn't a good speller either. <laughs> well, I don't think anybody was a good speller back then because they didn't have dictionaries. They didn't have a set way to spell anything. So, so, you, so do we assume that he was dictating it? Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, w- I would say he was probably dictating it to the scribe and the scribe was writing what he wanted. And again, the liberals get in there and they say, well, the, you know, he probably gave the scribe considerable freedom to say whatever they wanted. And <laughs> I'm sorry. No. <laughs> no. This is a letter from Paul. The scribe does not write the letter in the sense of forming the, 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 um, the content. The scribe merely forms the letters, not the content. Now, all of these are conjecture. Um, the, the most likely answer is that it's just more convenient for Paul. Scribes were very common in that day. Most churches likely had a couple scribes that were there because they were copying manuscripts. So he would have had easy access to a scribe. And this would have been very simple for him to sit down with a scribe and just dictate his letter, have the scribe write it out. He can get the content right, the scribe can get the form right. And it also served another purpose. If you have really messy handwriting, like Paul said he did, you want the church to read your letter. Messy handwriting doesn't help someone read your letter. And so by using... <laughs> I really wow. Wow. <laughs> Don't worry, I type things. I, joke I, I send emails for a reason. In <laughs> um, 1 Thessalonians 5.27, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. He wants his letters to be read, and by using a scribe, it would make sure the letter is nice and clean and neat, easy to read, and everybody would be able to pick it up and read the letter, and there would be no mistakes. Um, we already looked at Colossians 4.16 when he talks about having the church from Laodicea that letter read Edmund Hebert again the Pauline epistles form one of the most inestimable treasures of the Christian church serious and prolonged study of them only increases one's appreciation of their matchless value for the church and the individual believer Paul spent a great deal of time working out the content It's why pastors love preaching the epistles, because every little section is a little sermon in itself. Well thought out, well articulated, easy to explain. All right, questions on the epistles? No questions. Okay, go over to Romans 1. And we are going to get to Romans 1 today. See, I told you, we're going to get there. Now i'm going to be like macarthur and i'm going to do something to you that macarthur did romans 1 verse 1. paul exactly <laughs> <laughs> now i've got 30 minutes <laughs> <laughs> But if we want to understand the epistle, if we want to understand the epistles that Paul wrote, and we want to understand the book of Romans, understanding who Paul is would be very, very helpful. And knowing a little something about his life and who he is and where he came from might be helpful to you. We're not going to get into the three missionary journeys. We talked about three missionary journeys when we did Luke. We went, walked all the way through those uh, when we talked about Luke's life and how Luke was with Paul through those journeys. That is actually on the handout for Luke. But we are going to talk about his life leading up to the missionary journeys. Where how did he get to that point? The author of the book of Romans identifies himself as Paul. So who is Paul? Paul was born in Tarsus. He was born in Tarsus. Where is Tarsus? I had a verse for that. Oh, Acts 21:39, but Paul said I am a Jew of Tarsus. Um Tarsus is right there. Let me zoom in. There's Tarsus. So Syria would be over here, Israel's down here, Rome is that direction. Okay. Um, Tarsus is a part of Syria and is a province known as Cilicia. C-I-L-I-C-I-A. C-I-L-I-C-I-A. Uh, Galatians 1.21, he says, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. That was the region up there. Uh, Acts 23, when he's on trial, and... I, f- I forgot what this is, but he's on trial, and... He says that he, he is from Cilicia. So Tarsus is part of Cilicia. Tarsus was a significant city in that region. Um, it was the capital city of Cilicia. Acts twenty one thirty nine. but Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. Look, I didn't come from this little tiny, one-blink town out in the middle of nowhere. I came from Tarsus the capital of Cilicia. This is not an insignificant city. You might say it's no ordinary city. It was a part of the Roman Empire. It was a province of Rome. But unlike other provinces, this city was exempted from taxes. They didn't have to pay Roman taxes. Now, how do you think they pulled that one off? Huh? There were high officials. High officials, they supported somebody when they should have. They were exempted from taxation. Um, it was a perk given to the city by Emperor Ant- Antony for the, their opposition to this guy, Cassius. Anybody who knows who Cassius is? He was a Roman senator and a general. You know what he did? He, he, led, the, the, um, he led and incited the murder of Julius Caesar and the city of Tarsus opposed him. And so when Emperor Antony came to power, he gave them this little perk, you guys don't have to pay taxes because you did the right thing there. Tarsus became the educational center of the area. The scholarship of the University of Tarsus was described as being superior to Athens or even Alexandria. This was an educational mecca The university provided training in all sorts of different studies, but they especially focused on Stoicism. Remember through the Book of Acts, Paul would debate the Stoics? He has a background for it. I'm not saying he went to the University of Tarsus, but he certainly had enough exposure. Tarsus was an educational and intellectual center, but it was also the center of something else. It was the center of tent-making. The mountains that are north of Tarsus, up here, have these goats. They live on the mountains. The mountains get really cold, and the goats have this really long hair that keep them warm. And that hair is really good for making tents. Um... Yeah, uh, Acts 18, 2 and 3. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. Paul associated with them because they had the same trade. Paul was a tent maker from Tarsus. Tarsus was the center for tent-making. But it wasn't just his citizenship in Tarsus that was significant for Paul. He was also a Roman citizen. And he was very, very happy about being a Roman citizen. Being a Roman citizen had some perks. Um, can anybody remember some of the perks of being a Roman citizen for Paul? Boy, you could plead your case to Caesar. To go to the very top. Right. They can't execute you. You can plead your case to Caesar. Acts twenty two twenty five. 25, he goes to Jerusalem. The Jews grab hold of him. The Romans come and take Paul. They put him in chains. And the commander decides, well, I'm going to interrogate him by stretching him out and lashing him, flogging him. Acts twenty two twenty five. 25, but when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said... To the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he said, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. He was going to get scourged. Right up until the point he said, Oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen, and you have to follow the legal process before you can scourge me and the commander was terrified and let him pulled back and said oh never mind i don't want to do this and this is important because you didn't just become a roman citizen just because you lived in a province doesn't mean you doesn't make you a roman citizen they were very particular about who they made roman citizens because it brought so many legal and social benefits and in fact that very same commander, Acts twenty-two twenty-eight. 28, the commander answered, I acquired the citizenship with a large sum of money. I paid a lot of money to become a citizen. I paid for this perk. How did you get it? And Paul said, I was actually born a citizen. I didn't have to pay for my citizenship. I am by birth a Roman. Now how is it that Paul could be born a citizen of Rome when he's born in a province? Just because you were born in the province of Rome doesn't mean you're a citizen. So how did Paul get his citizenship? More than likely from his parents. His father or his grandfather likely did some great service or deed for the Roman government, and making him a citizen was a perk or a payback for whatever they did. Now, that's speculation. We don't actually know how he became a citizen. But we do know he was a citizen. He was a Roman citizen. He was a Jew that lived in a Hellenistic world. He had a Greek name. His Greek name was Paulos. His Hebrew name was Saul. He was named after the first king of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And he was circumcised according to Mosaic law. Uh, Philippians 3.5, he says of himself, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. So he's born in Tarsus. He's born to Jewish parents. His parents follow the Mosaic law, and they raise him as a Jew. Likely when he turns 13, that's when they were considered men, he is sent to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel. Acts 22.3, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. He's in Jerusalem. I was brought up in Jerusalem educated under Gamaliel strictly according to the law of our fathers being zealous for God just as all of you are today well who's Gamaliel Gamaliel was a member of the sanhedrin acts 534 says of him he was a Pharisee and a teacher of the law respected by all the people this was a highly respected teacher he was very knowledgeable in the Mosaic law in Uh, Pharisaic tradition. And under Gamaliel, Paul would have had an intense program of memorizing Scripture, studying Scripture, learning to interpret Scripture, and of course, he would interpret according to rabbinic tradition. And this is likely what led Paul to become a Pharisee himself, because his teacher was a Pharisee. And his teacher was a member of the Sanhedrin. He actually says, Philippians 3 5, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. So he became just like his teacher. And he was zealous for the law. He was intent about the law. Philippians 3 6, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Okay, wait a minute. He's a Pharisee, he's in Jerusalem. How is it that Paul doesn't meet Jesus while he's in Jerusalem? Jesus knew all the Pharisees. The Pharisees were well aware of Jesus. They figured out who he was really quick. So how is it that Paul doesn't seem to meet Jesus until sometime in the book of Acts? Why the delay? Well, it's likely that he just returned to Tarsus. He goes back home. After he gets his training, he goes back home to Tarsus, and there he begins to be a tent maker, and then he serves as a Pharisee, as a teacher, in one of the local synagogues. And it's from Tarsus that Saul likely learns about the upstart of this new religion. And according to what he would have thought, this heretical little group that's saying this guy who was crucified is the Messiah. And that zeal, that passion that he had, is what drove him back to Jerusalem to come back and deal with this little upstart religion. That re- the, the idea of Christianity would have been extremely offensive to him. 1 Corinthians 23, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. And he likely returned to Jerusalem with the goal of just ending Christianity. First mention of uh, Paul is in Acts seven. Acts seven. Anybody know what happens at the end of Acts seven? Someone does. What happened at the end of Acts seven? Yeah, the stoning of Stephen. Acts seven verse fifty-eight. Would somebody like to read? Just to get some activity going because I'm talking too much. Acts seven fifty-eight. Who would like to read that? <laughs> stoning him and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. First introduction to Saul. Right here, stoning of Stephen. Stephen is being stoned and all the witnesses, all the people are putting their robes by his by the feet of this guy named Saul. And if you think, well, that's okay, you know, Saul was a righteous guy, he really didn't want any part of it. He just happened to be there. Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Fully supported it. And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they all were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. I always read that and I think, man, even before his conversion, he's fulfilling the Great Commission. <laughs> great commission was it was going to go out into all the land, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here's Paul sending the gospel into Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. People are going everywhere. Go over to Acts chapter 9. Paul begins this persecution, Acts chapter 9. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. I have a quote here that I didn't put up. Okay. Um, MacArthur says he became like a war horse. With a smell of battle in his nostrils, snorting and unrelenting fury against everyone and everything that was Christian. Relentless. And he wasn't satisfied with just getting Christians out of Jerusalem. He wasn't satisfied pushing them into Judea and Samaria. He wanted to chase them as far as he could. And so, Acts chapter 9, verse 2. Would someone read Acts nine two? Uh, and ask for letters from him to be uh, to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them down uh, to Jerusalem. Thank you. Yeah. He's not satisfied just getting them out of Jerusalem, getting them out of Israel. Now he goes to the high priest and says, hey, give me letters that I can take to the synagogues in Damascus, in Syria, that will give me the authority to arrest these people and bring them back in chains and murder them. Paul described his rage to King Agrippa in Acts 26. He says, "And and as I punish them often in all the synagogues, I try to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. I mean, this is a guy just driven by hate. Galatians 1.13, he says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. That word for destroy refers to complete destruction, to pillage, to annihilate. I heard someone describe it. This is a mob term. He laid waste to the church. But it was on his way to Damascus. And he had a sudden change of heart. Acts chapter 9 again, starting in verse 3. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Knocked him off his high horse. I I just want to note that he originally says to him, Who's Paul going after? He's going after Christians. And the Lord says to him, Why are you persecuting me? You're going after my church, which means you're persecuting me. God should have killed him in that moment. Paul should have been knocked off his horse, dead, going straight to hell. So, I think the reason is this was the greatest transformation from one side to the other. Yeah. World. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you want to see regeneration, look right here. Talk about a change of heart. He should have, yeah, like all of us, we should have just been dead. He should have just killed us all. Not only did he not die, not only did he survive, he was commissioned for his ministry. Acts 9, verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, speaking of Ananias, uh, what's the guy's name? I forgot his name. Ananias. Ananias, thank you. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Ananias was like, wait a minute, you want me to go see who? You know what he does to us? I'm not going anywhere near this guy. Think about the faith it took for that guy to walk over and see Paul. That would have been terrifying. And Paul, throughout his life, never seemed to get over the reality of what happened on that day. It's like he could never get past it. First 1 Timothy 1, Starting in verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more abundant with the faith and love which were found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all, Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. If Paul could say if God could save a wretch like Paul who spent his entire life killing and destroying the church, surely he could save others. Surely he can save other wretches. And his life changed immediately. He went from being a persecutor of Christ to being a proclaimer of Christ. Acts 9. Ananias goes back to him, verse 19. Paul took food and was strengthened. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. So he's still in Syria. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Talk about a role reversal. He was just killing people a couple days ago. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on the name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? Doesn't that describe your um, your conversion? Wait, aren't you the guy who was just? Just What happened? Just think about the person that he was fixing to take out. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Lord. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder if that person knew who they were. I was first on his list. Oh, good. (laughs) Not anymore. Look at that! the end of that. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Already you're seeing Paul with this amazing ability to teach and to evangelize and to argue. That education from Tarsus and under Gamaliel is paying off. And he's confounding the Jews. And he was doing it so well that the Jews weren't happy with him. They didn't like it. These are his former buddies. These are the people that were there helping him persecute Christians. Acts 9, verse 23. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. Buddies turn to enemies real quick. And now they go to try to kill Paul. In 2 Corinthians eleven thirty-three, 33, Paul uh, indicates that it was the ethnarch. The ethnarch is the governor appointed by the Roman emperor. The, the governor who's appointed in Damascus. Uh, 2 Corinthians eleven thirty-two in Damascus, the ethnarch under Eretus, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. And so apparently this attempt at killing him uh, came, from the, came from the top. He was causing enough problems. So he escapes from Damascus, and he leaves, and he goes to Arabia. Anyone want to know where we find that information? Galatians. Galatians. Good, yeah, Galatians 1, verse 15 through 18. Paul describes his conversion, and then he describes leaving for Arabia. Uh, Galatians 1, verse 15, But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal a son to me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Here it is. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who who were apostles before me, But I went away to Arabia and returned to Damascus once more. Paul's in Damascus. He's preaching. He's teaching. Everybody wants to kill him, so he hightails it out of there. Most people would say, look, I need to go get some validation for my ministry. Let me go to Jerusalem. I'll buddy up with the apostles, and we'll get this thing started. And Paul says, nope, I'm going to Arabia. And he goes to Arabia for three years. Three years in the wilderness, in Arabia. By the way, three years is the exact amount of time that the other apostles had with Jesus. Galatians 1, verse 12, For I, speaking of what he preaches, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he goes to Arabia, and it seems that he had three years of personal discipleship under Christ. Do we know anything about what was going on there? No, we don't. And after he spends three years in the wilderness with Christ, he then goes to Jerusalem. And at this point, the timeline gets a little fuzzy. Acts 9.26, when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. Don't think that would be hard to understand why they wouldn't want to hang out with Paul. They probably don't believe he was actually converted. Now, that's three years later. They still remember this guy. Acts 9, verse 27. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas shows up, grabs Paul, and says, Come here. And he takes him to the apostles and explains to the apostles, Here's what happens. And he takes him to Peter, and he and Peter, Paul and Peter, hang out for 15 days. That's in Galatians 1, 18 and 19. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, that would be Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. And he and Peter become acquainted. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And so Paul is now received by the other apostles because of Barnabas and because of his relationship with Peter. And he begins to preach in Jerusalem. And once again, just like in Damascus, he gets a lot of attention. Acts 9, 28-30. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic Jews are Jews that have accepted Greek language, Greek culture, the very kind of Jews that he would have known in Tarsus. But they were attempting to put him to death. Once again, they are out to kill him. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So Paul goes to Jerusalem. He gets acquainted with the apostles. The apostles accept him into the fellowship. The disciples all accept him into the church. He goes out, begins teaching and preaching, and the Jews are like, oh, we need to kill this guy. And the disciples say, Paul, you need to get out of here. And they send him away, and they send him back Where? They send him home. Go back to Tarsus. So he re- he leaves Tarsus, and now he, he I'm sorry he leaves for Tarsus, and he goes home. He would later travel through this area on his first and second missionary journeys. Acts fifteen forty one. He was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul's pattern on his missionary journeys was to establish churches and then come back to them and visit them later. This leads us to believe that when he leaves Jerusalem and he goes home, he goes home and he establishes churches in Tarsus, the churches that he would later come back to on his first missionary journey. And so he goes home and he begins planting churches. In Acts 11, the Jerusalem church then hears about this. We were in Acts 9, you jumped to Acts 11. The Jerusalem church hears that the gospel is spreading in a little town called Antioch. And I should have put it up there. I believe it's in this region. Acts 11, uh, they decide to send Barnabas, good old Barnabas. He's still in Jerusalem. He's the one who introduced Paul to the apostles. They send Barnabas to Antioch to start shepherding those people and start helping with the ministry there. Acts eleven twenty one, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number of them believed and turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Barnabas goes to Antioch, and he realizes uh, <laughs> the, the harvest is a little bit too big here. And I can't do this on my own. I need some help. Where do you think he turns to get help? Paul. He served with Paul already. He knows Paul from Jerusalem, Acts 11, 25. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And he goes to Saul's home where the Jerusalem church had sent him. Tarsus. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. It was actually a pejorative to call someone a Christian. So Paul stays with Barnabas for a full year, ministering there, strengthening the churches, evangelizing, teaching. He would eventually leave Antioch for Jerusalem. He would leave because a prophet named Agabus gave a prophecy. The prophecy was that there was going to be a famine, and they bring together a collection for the church in Jerusalem. Acts eleven twenty eight. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate there would uh, indicate by the Spirit there would be there would wow would certainly be a great famine all over the earth, and this took place in the region of Claudius or the reign of Claudius, and in the proportion that any of the disciples had means each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea and this they did sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders so the churches of Tarsus and in the region of Cilicia pulled together this contribution for Judea and they send it down there and they send it in the hands of Paul and Barnabas Paul and Barnabas take it down to Jerusalem. They then return back to Antioch sometime later. We're not given how much time. And from there, the church in Antioch sends Paul and Barnabas out on a missionary journey to the Gentiles. And that is the very first missionary journey of Paul. Is that clear as mud to you guys? There's a lot to take in, but... yeah. A lot taken. Any questions? Oh, I thought Jesus, na- I mean, Jesus God renamed him Paul. Was that later? No, Paul was his Greek name. Uh, if you read the account of his conversion in Acts 8, Acts 9, uh, there's no mention of him getting a name change. That would have been his Greek name. Because Christ calls him Saul. I thought the same thing. Yeah. I thought the same thing for a while, too. So, All right, well, it's 10.03. Um, let me pray real quick, and I will let you guys go. Father, we thank you for uh, today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul and his life. We thank you for his epistles and all the instruction that you give through them. We do ask that you would continue to bless our study as we go through these epistles, as we look at Romans and the others. Uh, that uh, it would be a benefit to our souls and you would help us to grow into the image of Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.